This is The Global Gambit. Life inherently consists of gambits. Be it individuals or countries, the ability to outmaneuver, navigate, strategize, or feint to get ahead is crucial and inevitable against the complexities, unpredictabilities, risks, and competition associated with life around the world. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs, seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. Each episode, your host, Pyotr Kurzin, who being English and Russian is a product of geopolitical events himself, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists, and policymakers. Within each discussion, there is a live interactive audience who engages in a question-and-answer session with the guest in the podcast's second half. This episode is brought to you via the Ukraine sitrep room on Clubhouse, which has been continuously running since the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, surpassing 1 million unique listeners on April 20th of 2022. Want to learn how to participate? Stay tuned to the end of the podcast. And do not forget to engage with us on social media. And if you appreciate the content, to support us at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Thank you very much for listening and on to the show. This is The Global Gambit. Welcome, everybody, to The Global Gambit podcast, coming to you from the Ukrainian Sitrep Room live on Clubhouse with an interactive, diverse uh, audience participation. Joining me today is the, the wonderful Randall Slim, who is someone I've had the pleasure of uh, reading various amounts of work for, for quite some time, actually. She's, uh, she's done some fantastic work as part of the Middle East Institute, where she's the director of the Conflict Resolution and Track 2 Dialogues program, and was also a non-resident fellow at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced uh, and International Studies, or SICE, uh, and it's specifically its research uh, on the Foreign Policy Institute. Firstly, I'd like to hand over to Randa to introduce herself uh, and uh, and take us through a couple of the main um, themes and points, uh, Randa. It's great to have you with us. Good to be with you, Piotr, and good to be with everybody who is in the room. And I look forward to questions and to discussions with you all. I thought that initially I would just set the context of where are the different countries in the Middle East on the on the war on the Ukraine in, in Ukraine, and 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 then we can take it from there in terms of its implications for the region at at, at, at least different levels, uh, three levels particularly. So when when the war started, I and since then I think we can divide countries into three camps. You know, one camp is the pro-Russia camp, and there are only two countries from the Middle East that belong into that camp. There is the anti-invasion camp, and there are only two countries that initially, you know, made public statement against the invasion of of Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And then there is the third camp, which really is the majority of the countries of the Middle East, and these are the fence sitters. And that include and, and I'll, I'll I'll talk specifics about which camp includes which country. So in the first camp, the pro-Russia camp, you know, unsurprisingly, Syria is part of that camp, you know, and it was like quick to recognize the independence of the two breakaway separatist areas in eastern Ukraine and expressed readiness to join Russia um, in its fight. Uh, 
in that con- in that in that camp is Iran as well. Again, it's it's unsurprising uh, that uh, Iran takes um, Russia's um, side here. Although there has been a very interesting debate inside Iran, um, you know, uh, between the moderates, the reformers, uh, a large part of the public that are really opposed to the invasion, and then the centers of power, uh, the hardliners that hold power right now, particularly the Office of the Supreme Leader, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, and the Office of the Presidency. These centers of powers look at the invasion of Russia and their attitude as a litmus test to show their loyalty or their, I'd say, their, their, yeah, their loyalty to Russia because they see that, um, you know, if, if they were not to side with Russia at this time, um, it might affect their ability to withstand Western pressure, especially U.S. pressure. Um, in the future. So this is the, 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 the pro-Russia camp. Then you have the anti-invasion camp, and that includes two countries, Lebanon, which was the only Arab country, small Lebanon of 4.5 million people that is in the midst of the worst economic crisis right now, is the only Arab country that soon after the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, issued a statement condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and in reaction to which, the Russian ambassador in Beirut warned the Lebanese authorities at a press conference two days after they issued the statement. And I'm quoting here, we always look at who stands with us and who stands against us in difficult times. So uh, uh, Kuwait, um, you know, was also the only Arab countries on a list of more than 80 nations to co-sponsor a United Nations Security Council resolution to hold Russia accountable for its aggression against Ukraine. And, you know, it's interesting that these are the only, I mean, these are, I mean, Kuwait and and Lebanon are not foreign to invasions. You know, they have been invaded by their neighbors, you know, Lebanon by Israel uh, and, and, and Kuwait by Iraq. And that maybe explains why they were, you know, they have the strong position against invasion in general. Uh, then you have the, the third camp, and that's what I call the fence sitters. And that would include regional powerhouses like Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Egypt, uh, Iraq, uh, Jordan, most of the North African countries. Uh, and I would add to that also, you know, until recently, Turkey and, and Israel as well, which in the beginning, all of that group was really trying to straddle this Putin-West divide as much as possible, trying to preserve relations with both the United States, Europe on one hand, and Russia on the other. However, uh, and, and there are different drivers, and we can unpack those drivers in the discussion. And the way I, I write it, it is at least three categories of drivers um, can explain the fence-sitter's uh, position. One is politics. Again, it's relations with U.S. versus relations with Russia. Two is economics, you know, especially for the oil producing countries in the GCC. It's how it's going to impact their relation with Russia within OPEC plus, for example. And then uh, third is personalities. You know, uh, I mean, Putin, since he became president, has been cultivating personal relationships with the leaders in those countries, especially in the GCC. For example, you know, in 2019, visited Saudi Arabia, met with the crown prince at the time when, you know, the crown prince was accused of murdering um, 
the journalist, Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, and and was you know considered a pariah in in most of the international Western community. So uh, so these personal relationships. I don't know how many of you are from the Middle East, but in the Middle East. Almost everything is personal, and these personal relationships matter a lot to people, and particularly to leaders. And so they have, I mean, Putin has has cultivated this personal relationship, and 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 that is, in my opinion, one of the drivers of some of the positions that are made, especially by countries like Egypt, like Saudi Arabia, like United Arab Emirates. Now, Kuwait, I mean, uh, Turkey has really, you know, has 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 tried to basically. Do that straddling, you know, between the U.S. on one hand and Putin on the other. But at the same time, Turkey has, you know, relationships with with Ukraine um, and relies on Ukraine, especially in terms of its defense market. Uh, and so, um, so it has it has had recently. It has, you know, declared what happened an act of war, and and that's really. Pretty stronger, much stronger than what, for example, Turkey said when Crimea was invaded by Russia or when Georgia was invaded by Russia. And so, uh, so, and I think this is part of the the Turkish president attempt at uh, at, at cultivating better relations with the United States at a time when we had they have Turkey's uh, U.S. bilateral relations have been stressed over the last. A uh, few years, but at the same time, he's trying. You know, he did not join, for example, the sanctions imposed by the West against uh, Russia. So, by not doing that, by doing that, by not joining the sanction, he's trying to preserve a relationship uh, with Russia. And recently, you know, has positioned himself and his country as a mediator by hosting talks in um, in Istanbul between uh, between uh, Russia and and Ukraine. And that's the role that he. He, he sees himself playing going forward. Israel is is an interesting case here because in the beginning, you know, again, it tried to straddle this 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 divide between Putin and the West, arguing that it has two interests, two main interests that it's trying to preserve by preserving its relationship with with Putin. One, it's the freedom of maneuver in Syria to target uh, uh, Iranian and uh, pro-Iran. Uh, asset, uh, I mean, pro-Iranian group assets in Syria, as they have been doing since the start of the civil war in Syria. And second, you know, to 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 uh, to uh, uh, say maintain, uh, you know, the safe to safeguard the security and the interest of of more than hundred fifty thousand, you know, Jews who live in in Russia. And so, uh, and these are, you know, the two main interests that Russia has been. Uh, or uh, I mean, sorry, Israeli officials have have formulated when they were criticized, you know, for for not taking the side of Ukraine uh, when it's clearly it's being invaded by Russia, and especially after the the, the massacres committed by uh, Russia by Russian forces in Ukraine. Recently, they have, especially the foreign minister, has has become more blunt in in basically calling what's happening in in uh, Ukraine as an invasion and in taking a, a strong stand against it but again the you know at some point the israeli foreign uh, i mean prime minister tried to mediate or to position himself as a mediator uh but i don't think that that putin took that 
effort very seriously. Uh, uh, and, and we are going to see Israel and many of these fence sectors, as well as Turkey, continue to try as much as possible to maintain working relations with both you know, the U.S. on one hand, Europe, and then Russia on the other, and then trying as much as possible to, you know, send assistance to Ukraine, humanitarian assistance, without really condemning Russia, you know, uh, uh, as, as has been the case by many of the Arab countries when so, they issued the, the Arab League statement, which refused to even mention Russia in, in, in the statement. I'll yeah, so here. just, no, just on that point, I... <laughs> You uh, you dive straight in, Randa, and uh, you basically answered my initial question for you, which was wanting to understand the uh, the differing of positions. But just to dive into this a little bit more specifically about the uh, the GCC or Gulf states um, uh, and their positioning. Obviously, the United Arab Emirates started its two year term as an elected member on the Security Council, uh, and so they're going to be sort of, should we say, representing a, a large proportion of the Middle Eastern perspective, so to speak. Um, but if you could take us through uh, how I- you think the Middle East I- is going to be emphasizing its positions through the UN, through the vote tomorrow, but also in the uh, in this potential to try and kick Russia out of the Human Rights Council. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, look, when when, you know, I mean, as 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 you said, the UAE has, you know, and maybe UAE now is, is I mean, initially UAE was really eager to assume this uh, this this post the temporary receipt on the UN Security Council. And I think now it's maybe living to regret it because it's putting it, putting the, the country really in a very tough position in making these tough calls on behalf of the Arab countries, but on behalf of itself, as then it's trying to struggle the relationship between Putin on one hand and the West on the other, and particularly the US. So as you said, twice, you know, on the UN Security Council, there were two votes uh, taken uh, on February 25 uh, uh, to hold Russia accountable for its aggression against Ukraine and demand that Moscow withdraw its troops. And again, on February 27, to hold an emergency session of the General Assembly to discuss. And on both of these votes, the UAE decided to abstain. However, there was later a vote at uh, in the General Assembly, and I think the UAE voted with uh, uh, for 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 the um, uh, I think for the decision I mean it was part of the people that voted for um, that stance uh, and that's what the, when you talk with um, Emirati experts Emirati officials they said okay we abstained you know on the Security Council but we voted for uh, 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 I think the decision or we voted for the uh, uh, statement uh, at the end uh, in the General Assembly. Look, I don't know. I'm very curious because I've been tweeting about that. Tomorrow's vote is going to be interesting because, and, and so I don't know how many of them will abstain. I'm expecting many of them will abstain because remember the vote is, you know, the which is the motion to have Russia uh, suspended from the uh, uh, Human Rights Council, the United Nations Human Rights Council. I mean, it's going to take two thirds uh, of the majority of the votes, but it's of those of the countries that vote, whether positive or negative. Uh, so it's but doesn't count those who abstained or would you know. So um, so I think the the resolution will pass tomorrow because the we have enough votes to have it passed. But I don't think that. Um, 
I, I, it would be curious to see which of the Arab countries, which of the countries of the Middle East, because, you know, Israel, Iran, Turkey, um, uh, which of the countries in North Africa, how they will vote. You know, Iraq, for example, uh, with the United, uh, for, you know, abstained from the vote at the United Nations General, General Assembly um, the first time. And citing its uh, Russian investments, uh, its relations with the Russian defense industry. So each country has been, you know, offering different rationales for why it's taking the position it has been taken. And I have to say that, look, there, there is no domestic political cost for the position, especially of those fence sitters. You know, we have not seen in the Arab region or in the Middle East writ large, we haven't seen protests. For example, people going in the, on the, in the streets um, in support of the Ukrainians. And partly because, I mean, this is a region that has been experiencing now all sorts of instability. Some of these countries have been in the midst of, you know, civil war now for the last 10 years. There is a, in the whole region, there is this feeling of war fatigue. But also there is this feeling of double standards of the West. You know, when you talk with people, you know, as I, as you said in your introduction, I go to conferences a lot in the region. I maintain a lot of contacts in the region. I travel around the region a lot. And people now talk, I mean, recently when I was there, people were open about, okay, I mean, so they are asking us to support Ukraine against Russia. And then when we ask them to support Palestine and Palestinian against Israel, you know, after all, you know, you have Palestinian lands that have been, that are being occupied by Israel. And we don't see US, especially the United States standing with us against Russia and, you know, sent its troops into Syria. And what did the US do to help the Syrians? Not much. So there is this, so the political cost of being a fence sitter in the region domestically are not, are, are non-existent right now. And I think that partly explain why these countries and the leadership continue to espouse this position. Although I have to say, you know, I, I, I follow a number of what I call public influencers, you know, on, on Twitter and all of this. And I use them as my weather vane to see where the, you know, uh, policies of some countries, especially in the GCC, are moving. I think the, the Bucha massacre has really, you know, raised the level of the debate, raised the anger of people, really, you know, tapped into, into you know, their humanity, that tapped into their anger of 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 seeing, you know, dead children, of seeing people in the streets, you know, bodies left, of seeing what, what the Russian forces have done to, you know, women raping. And, and, and so I think you might see a shift. You might see more of a public in many Arab, pub, Arab countries and many in the region starting to, you know, raise some pressure that we might need to hear. You know, we cannot afford to remain neutral. Yeah, and that's actually a good... Um... I mean, on the on the uh, UAE point, it's uh, we could see this um, even the day after the, the day or so after the um, the initial invasion uh, by Russia, because uh, the UAE was was having to sort of play a balancing act of trying to keep um, uh, Russia on the side or not be overtly critical of Russia because they needed them on side for a a vote on um, uh, the Houthis and Yemen uh, that followed a couple of days afterwards. So. Uh, there's definitely I, sort of I a balancing act. Between question to people in the UAE about this, you know, is this a quid pro quo? I mean, did you abstain from the vote, you know, the first time 
and you got the Houthi vote. I mean, the Russia's support for listing the Houthis as a terrorist organization, you know, by the uh, by the UN Security Council as part of that, you know, is that the quid pro quo? And and you know, they said, yeah, it might explain the first vote, but it doesn't explain the second vote on the Security Council, you know, which is also an abstention. I think it has also to do both for UAE and Saudi Arabia their positions here vis-a-vis this has also to do with their with their. I'd say uh, the ongoing challenges between these countries and the United States, uh, and 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 they see that uh, and it's part and, and you know they see there is this perception now in the region whether it's correct or not that the United States is deprioritizing the region. You know, not to say withdrawing from the region because we still have significant military intelligence, economic assets in the region. But there is this perception in the region shared by the leadership in the region as well by the public that the U.S. is on its way out. And so the countries of the region, especially in the GCC, have been for some time working on diversifying their international alliances and have been, you know, Putin has been courting them, has been trying to, you know, nurture this relationship with the GCC. But at the same time, the leaders in the GCC country have been reaching out to Russia, have been reaching out to China, you know, thinking that, well, the U.S. is on its way out and we need to diversify these international alliances. And I think within that overall context of diversification of the drivers of their foreign policies, I think we need to explain to, to understand the, the positions taken by the UAE, by, um, you know, by, by Saudi Arabia, but also by, the by countries sanctions, like yeah. Egypt as well. Absolutely. Um, and that's quite a um, that's quite a good um, segue. I want to move into sort of the next uh, should we say segment or theme? Uh, one of them was your section on, you know, the divided regional response to Russia's invasion, right? Um, yes. And I think what's very interesting was your was your last was your last paragraph about sort of there are about the fence sitters. Uh, just to build on this point, on the because uh, I want to dive into a little bit about each country's particular and um, what's happened for sort of different these different groups of countries if we want to put them into these broad categories right um what the domestic implications have been from ukraine uh, and one of the things that caught me about this article was uh, your comments was that there, it's a good point that there are no domestic political costs for the fence sitters there are no large protests occurring in any of the arab cap- uh, capitals denouncing the russian invasion um uh, and as you said it's partially driven by war fatigue and fears of the implication of the conflict for the regional security i was just wondering if you could unpack that a little bit more because i think it's if we could dive down into some of the domestic elements and a bit of a deeper dive. I think that'd be really interesting. The, the people in the region, especially, I mean, including, including you know, Iran, including, uh, including Turkey, including uh, Israel, but also in, in many of the, you know, in the Arab region, have been now since the Arab Spring in 2010, 2011, and how that ended eventually through counter-coup and through, you know, counter-revolutionary uh, and, and military coup. Uh, and then, uh, and then you know, the regional, the civil wars that erupted in, in Yemen, in Libya, uh, in Syria, um, you know, ISIS in Iraq in 2014, then, you know, in Syria. So, there have been now a pause for the last 11 some years to image on daily exposure on, on their TV sets, uh, to images of death, to images of destruction. And, and there is really this, this, this feeling that, you know, we have had our share and that this is not 
a war where we have a horse in. You know, this is a race where we are, you know, we are not affected directly. And 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 there is this, in my opinion, it's a psychological reaction of people who have been wounded by so many years of of war and uh, and death and killings. You know, some of them wounded personally, but some of them wounded on a daily basis by being exposed to, you know. Their, their 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 countrymen as well as people from their region to what they have been exposed i mean after all the syrian refugee crisis you know i mean this is this is a region that has already experienced at least three to four waves of refugees and they are still now going to be dealing with these refugee crises so first there were the palestinian refugees then there were the iraqi refugees and then recently there were the syrian refugees and so, and now increasingly, because of the economic situation in Lebanon, you have Lebanese economic refugees heading to Arab countries for jobs. So the instability in the region has really, how to say, take, not desensitized the people to what's happening in Ukraine, but it has right relegated the suffering that they see happening in Ukraine to, you know, a, a, to a second level of attention, if we can put it, of importance. Because the region is still in the midst of this suffering, is still in the midst of these refugee crises, and, 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 and still recovering from the pandemics, you know. And as a result, uh, you have huge, um, you know, pressure, uh, inflationary pressure. Uh, we are going to talk about the implication. You have a, a, a food crisis that's about to hit some of these countries. Lebanon might be experiencing famine in not in a long time from now. Uh, Syria might be experiencing a famine. I mean, the problems that are going to hit these countries as a result of the you know, food uh, insecurity, because Many of them import a large portion of their wheat from either Ukraine, Russia, or both. Uh, Egypt imports 86% of its wheat from Russia and Ukraine. Lebanon imports 90% of its wheat from Russia and Ukraine. And Egypt might have reserves. Lebanon has one-month reserves of wheat. Why? Because the grain silos that used to store the wheat were destroyed in 2020 in the Beirut port blast. So they have only one month reserve. And it's very hard now to buy wheat, you know, partly because the prices are too high or partly also because there are no sellers, you know, there is so much competition for, for, for the wheat, uh, you know, uh, given the wheat shortage. And so, so that's in my opinion part of the, what's driving, what's driving this, this, this reality right now in the Arab region. And I don't see that changing, not only in the Arab region, but in the Middle East at large. Turkey, Turkey, the same thing, you know, in terms of uh, its supply. I mean, Russia supplies nearly half of Turkey's natural gas. So also we are going to talk about all security, but also two thirds of its wheat imports. So, um, so we are, and, and to be very honest, having just returned from the region and talking with officials and people in the region, I don't think the countries and the government have yet internalized the severity of this food crisis. I think they are still trying now half, half measures to see if they can make up for the shortage. But I see some of these countries, Tunisia, including Tunisia, for example, um, uh, you know, having some serious, serious uh, trouble. Remember, the, the protest that led to the Arab Spring in 2010, or what we call the pre-Arab Spring protest phase, were sparked by bread by 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 food shortage crisis by increase in bread prices. So 
the, I'm not saying we are going to see a, a, an Arab Spring 2.0 in the future, but we might see, you know, definitely we are going to see uh, severe, you know, uh, uh, how to say, food issues, food security issues, but also we are going, which will have implication on, on uh, social and security stability. We've sort of geared towards the uh, the other theme area that I was going to co- want to cover a little bit more was the uh, is the food insecurity. I mean, uh, as far as I can tell from statistics I've read, food insecurity isn't my specific area of focus. But um, the the Ukrainians and the Russians give a produce around a third of global wheat production, and then it's about fifty okay. percent um, they also produce of sunflower oil. So how uh, what kind of contingency plans? if any, are different countries making to try and um, offset the potential um, uh, shortages that they could be facing? Are we seeing there going to be a potential fight over certain arable areas? I mean, look at Ethiopia, for example, the very fertile part of uh, the Horn of Africa. Uh, both Turkey and UAE have been, um, you know, selling drones like there's no tomorrow to the Ethiopian government in the past year and a half during the Tigaru conflict. Um uh, and one of the things that I think is equally very interesting is that there was an article in The Economist, which was basically discussing, um, you know, this uh, this idea of uh, meddling middle powers uh, and this sort of, you know, whilst the great powers are distracted by other global issues, uh, China, Taiwan and Ukraine, obviously. Now, it gave the opportunity for middle powers like Turkey, for example, and UAE with its own regional ambitions to sort of get flex and uh, stick their arms out so to speak so i was just wondering if you could take us through a little bit about uh the contingency plans and sort of potential responses that we could see from the uh the the the, the different groups um in the because uh, turkey and qatar for example are getting quite close over over middle eastern uh internal insecurity as well so if you could just take us through uh, some of those um developments and where you see them going that'd be good that'd be really interesting as i said i don't you know, what they're trying to do is trying to buy wheat to shore up their reserves from other producers, you know, Canada, Australia, Argentina. Uh, some countries like Egypt uh, has uh, decided to expand part of its farmland to be, um, you know, to be, fo- uh, to be focused on the production of wheat. But that's not going to come into effect until two more years. So sh- medium term, yes, but, you know, short term still, there is this problem of feeding their people in the midst of a global shortage of wheat supplies. You know, building on what you just said, esti- an estimated 70 percent, 70, 70 of Russia's wheat exports go to the Middle East and Africa in uh, went to the Middle East and Africa in 2021, 70%. So I don't know how much of that is 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 going to be impacted. How much of that is can you know, especially given the sanctions that are going to that have been imposed. Uh, you have already countries that are like Iraq, for example, that. Uh, you know, governments have told their uh, their businesses and uh, not to you know uh, to stop any kind of dealings with uh, with Russian uh, with Russia because of the fear of sanctions. We are going to see that uh, across the the board in in all other countries in terms of. Uh, so I think it's the problem is that who can make up for that shortage, and hopefully there will be 
uh, some, you know, other countries will step up to the plate and, and make up for that shortage. Uh, however, uh, that's going to take some time uh, uh, to, to build reserves and to be able to find alternative sources. And in the interim, you are going to see um, rise in bread prices. You are going to see shortage in availability of, you know, bread, uh, corn oil and all of this. And that's going to, as I said, create some kind of social instability, maybe with some security implications as well. Uh, the countries are, are trying their best, trying to find alternative sources. Um, now, oil-producing countries like uh, the Gulf are going to be called upon, in my opinion, to help in, 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 in mitigating some of the uh, negative consequences of both the food insecurity, but also the oil, the rise in oil prices. And we have seen, for example, Egypt that is going through a, a, a major economic crisis. We have seen Saudi Arabia, we have seen United Arab Emirates, we have seen Qatar now coming in and, and putting investments in Egypt, providing, you know, uh, financial assistance for the government to be able to help again deal with some of these negative consequences that's going to affect not only its budget but also you know its its ability to provide these resources to its population uh lebanon is a smaller population you know 4.5 but still you know they have as i said one month reserve it's going to be you know critical for them and economic and and in the midst of an economic crisis they don't have the funds to be able to compete with other countries that are able to afford higher prices for uh, for wheat on the international market so they're going to rely again on assistance either from gulf arab countries or from the international community like they have been doing for some time syria is is a peculiar case and and you know it's going to be complicated might get into that there is a cross-border um, mechanism right now in place that is um, uh, uh, through which uh, the United Nations bring humanitarian assistance from Turkey into northwestern Syria and on which, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Syrians in those parts of the country that are not under the control of the Syrian regime rely to survive. Now, that, that kind of assistance, the cross-border assistance, needs you know, it has been approved according to a Security Council resolution. Now, this Security Council resolution is coming up for renewal in July. And as will Russia veto this as one way to put pressure on the countries like the States, France, UK, that really want this cross-border assist to continue, but also put pressure on Turkey, because it is in the interest of Turkey for this cross-border humanitarian assistance to continue. Otherwise, it's going to face a flood of Syrian refugees coming from northwestern Syria to Turkey and create, you know, another kind of, be another reason of social instability, but also major stressor on the economy, especially that, you know, Turkey already hosts up to 3.5 million Syrian refugees. So much to cover, and I think you're doing a tremendous job of giving us a snapshot into each individual uh, country's position. My, my next question, Randa, is sort of about Russia's interests in the Middle East. Obviously, it's, it's got a, an overarching influence in the region, and in some ways it's been called the peace broker because of how it managed to sort of, you know, effectively win, in quotation marks, 
the Syrian war, at least against the Americans and the West, it's sort of, you know, they've managed to keep Assad in power whilst removing uh, Dinesh and, uh, and, and sort of relatively improve the situation and, and support Iran, so to speak. But what do you think the Ukrainian conflict is going to mean for Russia's interests in the Middle East, but also its engagement in the Middle East? Like, are we going to see them putting out troops from certain areas, uh, reorientating and focusing fully on Ukraine? Or do you think that it's going to be a case of they've, they've spread themselves too thinly? Potentially? It's a very interesting question. And you have a lot of people in the region and experts on the region who are thinking through this, because I think this is a very, very, very important question. You know, as you put it, I mean, Russia now is involved, physically involved through its Wagner group, as well as through its military, in two conflicts in the region. In Syria, it had, you know, in 2015, it, sends its, it sent its military to prop up the Assad regime and has, as a result, acquired, you know, uh, or how to say, acquired even more asset. It used to have access to a military base on the Mediterranean. Now it has, you know, this two big bases there. It has also a lot of economic interest in Syria, you know, in terms of economic deals in different sectors of the Syrian economy, especially phosphate industry. So that's that's Syria. And, and in Libya, you know, Russia sent its Wagner group, which is a group of, you know, former military um, mercenary groups who basically follow the dictates, you know, of Putin's and Moscow, but they give Russia this deniability of them not being, you know, a Russian army or Russian military. But they are really all former Russian military, if not active Russian military, but put on these uniforms of being non-military and part of this mercenary group. That it, the Wagner group, you know, got involved in Libya in the conflict there between the eastern and the western part of Libya. Uh, the Wagner group came in to support General Haftar, that is who is based in the western part of the country, and along with the UAE, you know, try to you know preserve the the ability of of General Haftar to be remain a stakeholders, you know, in 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 a major stakeholder in the eventually political resolution of the conflict there. So you have these two conflicts where Russia play an import, have played an important role, in my case, a negative role, but it has played an important role. And the resolution of this conflict will not take place unless Russia is part of the solution. And so Russia can be a spoiler for any UN process as, as it's happening, you know, uh, um, you know, sorry, I mean, there is a UN process in Syria and Russia has played an important role in bringing the Assad regime to the negotiation table. Although that political process, in my opinion, has been dead for some time. But there is a political process, the UN, uh, you know, with the UN mediating between the Syrian government and the opposition forces. Uh, I think we can now think, I mean, one, one, one safe assumption is that political process is dead. I don't see Russia willing to play that kind of a role going forward. Instead, it's going to use, in my opinion, its influence in Syria to, in fact, you know, enhance its presence, expand its presence, and 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 use it as a leverage in in negotiations with the West, um, with Arab countries, not only on the Syrian file but on other files, including Russia, including Ukraine, and including other issues where. 
you have divergent, you know, increasingly divergent Russian and American interest, as well as Russian and maybe Arab interest. Uh, so that's these are two countries. So I think the impact of the Ukraine conflict and the Russian role is at the political level, at least in terms of conflict resolution. I think this is going to have a negative impact on the potential resolution of these two conflicts in Libya and Syria, and in fact might protract these conflicts even more. So partly because Russia will will play its a spoiler role there rather than a. a, a, a conflict mediator or a conflict resolver role. Uh, that's 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 true. And there is this cross-border assistance vote that's coming up in June. Um, that's some that's a vote that's that's a vote that the West, US, UK, France uh, has been pushing for Turkey. Uh, I think Russia might again, you know, veto that and that will cross that line of assistance. Now the UN has to figure out workaround ways to provide this assistance, but it makes that even more difficult than it is already. And so we can create, you know, some kind of a, um, I mean, we can see the, we can see even more, uh, how to say, accentuation of the, of the, of the uh, dire economic and humanitarian condition that uh, these countries are experiencing. So I don't know if I if I answered your question, but but this is I will stop here and then see if we can entertain more questions. No, absolutely, it's not a <laughs> it's not meant to be an easy question. Um, you know, got to got to throw some curveballs in there as well. But um, thank you very much, Randa. That's a, that's a great, I think, as I say, in depth yet um, holistic coverage of I think. You even went into Libya and Tunisia, so we've even covered bits of North Africa, so the whole MENA region. Um, what I'd like to do now is uh, move to the the um, audience segment. We've got a fantastic audience uh, group here listening in today. I want to go to the man, the myth, the legend that is uh, Jacob Barlow, uh, who helped to curate yet another fantastic discussion. Uh, so, Jacob, the floor is yours. So, I've seen some some uh, news articles and a few Twitter threads um, comparing uh, this current instance of uh, not having enough wheat and like general food, the potential for general food shortages uh, in the Arab world, particularly in Egypt, uh, as a comparison to the Arab Spring. And that preceding the Arab Spring in 2011, in, in 2010, 2011, uh, government, multiple governments who have these wheat subsidies for bread were considering either cutting off the subsidy or already had. And that was one of the catalysts for protests. Um, and there were obviously other reasons, but that this is a, an issue that could potentially bring down governments. So if, if they do get rid of the subsidy, there's going to be mass protests and mass unrest in certain countries. I'm thinking of Egypt in particular. And if they don't get rid of the subsidies, then there's going to be a huge financial strain on these countries. I was just looking at Egypt and Egypt, of Egypt's, Egypt's GDP. They spend 1% on wheat subsidies, which is a huge amount. That's not government spending. That's the total GDP. So I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about the financial implications or potentially uh, of any social unrest uh, if subsidies are cut. I mean, because, I mean, there are subsidies are being cut right now in Egypt. That's part of a, you know, uh, commitment that Egypt, part of a whole reform program that Egypt has agreed upon to undertake uh, with the IMF uh, to secure at least one loan of the IMF from the uh, recent loan from the IMF. So the subsidies are being cut, and that's what, in a way, makes this 
shortage even um, you know especially the increase in in prices as the subsidies are being cut even more deeply felt and more harshly felt by the population i mean 30% of the egyptian population is on the poverty line so we are talking about a, and this is a huge population so we are talking about large number of families that are going to be affected throughout egypt by the increase in uh, in food prices as the subsidies are being cut uh will they lead to uh will they lead to will there be protests uh yes i think there will be protests but will they be able to lead to an arab spring kind of uh movement that will bring down regimes uh, as you put it i don't think so i think it's it's going to be hard at this moment particularly because the coalition of forces that made the arab spring possible in country like egypt is no longer there um you know a lot of the youth that really were the major catalysts you know at least at the street level for uh, mobilizing people um many of them are in jail you have 60000 political prisoners you know in jail in uh, of 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 those who participated in in the arab spring right now in egypt um uh, Uh, a lot of them have left the country you know they are in exile uh you have uh, major you have had marginalization of labor unions uh, who were also that were also part of uh, part of the forces that brought that brought the arab spring in egypt uh, to the fore um and then you have you know the islamists who were also part of this movement again many of them are in jail most of them are in exile or underground so um and then you have a military uh, that has really uh, effective control over all levels of power and over all sectors of the economy so it's hard given this political context um to imagine uh, broad protests uh, which in my opinion are going to happen to be able to lead to the kind of uprising to bring the sisi regime in egypt Thanks a lot for that great question um Jake really really good um some in-depth aspects there to break up from my rather broad questions. Um all right next up I think we're going to go to a good a uh, good friend of the club and um just a chap who helped name Global Gambit I have to give him kudos to that. Uh uh Aaron Berger what yours. Great to uh great to meet you here and and really appreciate your insights and I can definitely think that I speak for a lot of folks who want to say that learned a lot from your contributions today. Um looking at your profile I noticed that you also uh lead track to the track to dialogues program there um at uh, uh the Middle East Institute. Um so I was curious I uh, a bit of a fan of of track 1.5 and track to uh diplomatic frameworks myself uh as I'm sure you know about uh the success that track 1.5 and track 2 diplomatic frameworks have had um when uh negotiations have uh, become stymied uh, you know and and so i was curious as to your uh take on whether or not a track 1.5 or a track 2 dialogue uh would have more success than than uh what i would say are are more track 1 frameworks happening right now thank you for this question uh so to make it clear to everybody track 1 is what governments do track 1.5 these are you know dialogues that involve people a mix of government officials non-government official experts and track 2 are totally 
non non officials. So it's a it's a group of experts, public influencers, citizens uh, who come together across la- conflict divides to you know think together about ways to get out of a you know about solutions. Um, and it could be you know for a number of reasons. So I have been involved since the 1990s in several U.S.-Russian, U.S.-Russia track 1.5 dialogues as well as track 2 dialogues. And in fact, I was part of a uh, collaboration, a U.S.-Russia team working together. I mean, three Americans, three Russians working together as a mediation team in the Tajik conflicts between 1992 and 2000. So not only have I been, you know, as part of a U.S.-Russia dialogue, but also I have worked with the Russians in um, in the solution of one of the conflicts in in what they used to call in the in the old days the Mir Abrut region of the of the former Soviet Union. Um, in this case, in Tajikistan, in Central Asia. So, do I see? I mean, there is now an official process going place, as I said, uh, with Turkish uh, mediation. Um, between Ukraine and Russia. Um, uh, the problem is that eventually there needs to be, you know, eventually, I mean, after all the first well-known instance of track 1.5, track 2 was between French and Germans, you know, after World War Two, or as, as World War Two was unwinding. So eventually that need, I mean, these are countries that live next to each other, despite all the atrocity, despite all the hatred, they need to live next to each other. Geography matters. And in this case, you know, both countries are stuck with each other. Uh, so eventually track 1.5, track 2 between Ukraine and Russia. I know, I understand it's very hard to imagine right now, but eventually it needs to happen going forward. As I said, they live next to each other. They need to, you know, live with each other. That's one. But in terms of the solving of this conflict, um, you know, I can imagine some contribution that, or some need for a U.S.-Russia track to dialogue, particularly to focus on the relationship. I mean, and, and taking it from the perspective of the Middle East, as I said, if we take Syria, you cannot have a resolution of the conflict in Syria without Russian being at the table. The same thing in Libya. You cannot have a resolution of the conflict in Libya without Russia being at the table. And I imagine there would be other conflicts. In Yemen, for example, until recently, in the Yemen war, uh, the Yemen uh, civil war, Russia and the United States' position on solution were pretty much convergent. Now, will this conflict now produce divergence? And in that case, can we solve the conflict in Yemen without Russia being at the table? So there needs to be a dialogue, in my opinion, between the United States and Russia. Although it's very hard to imagine it happening at this time officially, but unofficially, there will always be competition. There will always be animosity, but there also there are there are needs for some cooperation between us and the Russian on solving some of these conflicts around the world, particularly in my case, in the Middle East. Whether this can happen now, whether this can happen in the next two months, I don't know. But 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 it is it's important to maintain these lines of communication, you know, and it could be mill to mill, you know, the deal conf- there is a deconfliction line right now in northeast Syria 
between the United States military and the Russian military. Both of us have forces there, and there is a deconfliction line to make sure that the two militaries do not come into conflict with each other, into some kind of military escalation with each other. There might need to be a deconfliction line eventually between the U.S. military and the Russian military over Ukraine. Uh, so these li- communication channels, whether it is deconfliction lines between militaries, whether it is track one dialogues, track 1.5 dialogues, need to happen. It's hard to imagine them happening in the midst of all this, you know, horror that we are seeing, you know, we are ex- being exposed to. But this is when they are needed. Thank you for that. Uh... Interesting question, Aaron, taking us in a slightly different direction, absolutely. Um, Shuvik, great to, great to have you here and also um, providing the great resources that is at a point. Love to go to you next. Yeah, Peter, thanks so much. Uh, and thanks for this uh, kind of legendary room that, that, that all of you have uh, been leading here. And Rena, thanks so much for your, your talk so far and connecting all these different uh, very complicated elements. And as Peter said, covering pretty much every country in the region. Um, and uh, it's, it's really interesting to think about all the competing uh, elements and motivations. Um, I wanted to ask about oil prices. So in the West, there's a key question if high oil prices are going to weaken resolve, you know, increase inflation. Eventually, there's going to be popular backlash. Um, and I think Putin's counting on that to some degree. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, the Saudis in the past were very, were very closely tied to the U S but have spent a lot of time since 2016 building relationships with Russia, China, and so far have signaled their, uh, they value that Russian relationship through war, uh, through war and peace. So I'd love your take on how is Saudi Arabia thinking of, uh, the price of oil and its decision to increase oil production short-term and long-term. Thank you for this really very good question. Although I'm not a, an energy expert, but I'm going to try, you know, to answer it from my perspective, at least from a political perspective. I think, I mean, and, uh, there were recently two conferences, energy conferences in, in the region, I think last week in Abu Dhabi. And, um, and, one of the, I mean, and on one panel you could see on one po- on the same podium on one panel there was the minister of energy of Saudi Arabia, minister of energy of uh, UAE. And it was clear that they were asked. I, I think it was Hadley Gamble who was doing the interviewing, and she asked about why they are refusing, you know, to heed the calls by the United States to increase, um, you know, their oil production in order to help mitigate some of these increases in oil prices. And 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 this is where they came in and said, you know, uh, I mean, I think part of their of their drive, as you, as you put it in your question, is that at this point, um, they see the increase in price, you know, to be beneficial. I feel they're, they're I mean, they are going to, most of the GCC countries are not going to experience budget deficits next year. So partly due to the increase in oil prices. So in a way, these high oil prices help them to make up for, um, I mean, to, 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 um, to enhance their uh, financial reserves really the, coming after the pandemic where they had um, some serious financial problems during uh, during the pandemic. So in the short term, it's 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 a good thing. Um, 
And and that's what also drives their decision not to violate the OPEC plus agreement, which with Russia, you know, this uh, which basically, you know, uh, dictates certain production quotas per each country that is part of the agreement. Uh, and that, but also, I think what's driving their decision not to increase the quotas and not to heed the U.S. calls is their worry about an Iranian oil coming on the market if there is a JCPOA deal concluded anytime soon, and the how it will affect the prices. So that's one of the. Of the they are also worried about a potential global recession due to the implication of the Ukraine war, that if, they, if there was a surplus of oil in the market, that will create to decrease the prices. I think that's one of the drivers of that, uh, one driver for that position. Uh, now, uh, so in the short term, I think they're going to stick with the OPEC plus agreement and, and partly again to salvage the relationship with Russia. However, in the long term, as Europe starts moving away from Russian oil and looking for alternative sources of oil, you are, I think Saudi Arabia, UAE are going to start seeing opportunities which they can mine to sell oil to a market which until recently was pretty much controlled by, by Russia. And, and so, so you are, we might see in the medium to long term competition especially as sanctions start hitting more and more the oil and gas sector, hopefully in the future, the Russian oil and gas sector, you are going to see competition um, uh, with Russia for um, for uh, Eastern European markets, for your Western European markets. However, what's I think also worrying them now in the short term is that um, uh, the 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 price of the, I mean, the, the crude from the euros is now being offered uh, to India, to China, at really heavy discount prices. And you are starting to see the Russian oil um, starting to cut some of the Saudi share in the Chinese market, some of the Saudi UAE share in the Indian market. So that's also going to be of some concern to them. So right now they are sticking with OPEC price. The prices are good for them. But there are, and there are different reasons why they are not increasing their production quotas. But in the medium to long term, I can see that relationship with Russia starting to take, how to say, a second place to their economic interest of starting to compete, to cut into Russian, into, into the Russian share of the European market and to compete with Russia in the Chinese and Indian market. Thanks a lot for that great question, uh, uh, Shivit. Really good one, um, and got my. Thank you so much. That, what, that was a really yeah. Thank you so much for that answer too. Uh, I want to move on to Raphael, who I think had another really good question for you. Hi, yes, this is Raphael. Um, well, first and foremost, uh, hi, Randa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, my question has to do with the fighters actually from Chechnya that are supporting the Russian armed forces in Ukraine. Full transparency, I don't know that much about the region, but I do know that it is majority Muslim and the leader, uh, Kadyrov, is uh, quite an eccentric character, to say the least. But from what I understand, this uh, Kadyrovsky force of Chechen fighters was deployed in Syria, or to Syria, excuse me, back in 2015 as 
part of the Russian troops that went there as well to support the Assad dictatorship, which I'm sure was useful for the Russians since the Chechens could, you know, interact with the local Syrian population, given that they both practice Islam. And now with these reports of Syrian fighters also in Ukraine supporting the Russian forces, it seems like maybe they're returning the favor. But I guess my question has to do mainly with the motives of the Chechens that are uh, supporting Russia in Ukraine and to what extent there is a religious component um, acting as a driver as well. Thank you. Yes, Chechens were deployed to Syria. Um, they were part of um, the forces, I think, that were deployed at different checkpoints, you know, by the Russian forces to interact with the local population. Um, and so... And they have had experience, you know, and um, and then there are reports of Syrian fighters who might be heading to uh, to Ukraine, although we have yet to see evidence, to be very honest, of Syrian fighters on the ground in Ukraine. And there are many, we can talk about the reasons why, uh, but, um, but despite, I saw the New York Times report that there are Syrian fighters who are registering and volunteering for it to go, particularly for economic reasons, because they get paid 10 times or even 100 times what they are making in, in Syria. Is there religious motivation? I don't know. Is it mostly because Russia asked them, you know, to, to, to help? And as Russia asked them to help in Syria, you know, and, and uh, you know, to show loyalty and they have no way to say no? to Putin if when asked, maybe that's the reason. But is there religious motivation like jihad or something? I, I don't think so. I mean, but although I stand to be corrected. Thank you very, Rafa, very much, Rafael. That's uh, stretching the, the limitations of Ramda's expertise there, but uh, gave it a good stab. And, uh, and I think it's something that we should definitely look into more. Uh, definitely a, a discussion on the Central Asian uh, caucuses and alike. Um, but with that, I just want to move, uh, to Mr. Greg Sattel. I think he had a, a question. He was, uh, he was, uh, open to asking. Hi, Rhonda. Thanks for joining us. Um, at some point, this Russia Ukraine conflict is, is going to be over and you're going to have two countries with very, very close ties in, business ties and, and family ties and pretty much every tie that you can think of that now hate each other, especially from the Ukrainian point of view and from the Russian point of view, in many cases, they don't really understand what the grievance is. Uh, you know, we've heard many, many stories of uh, Russian family members of, of Ukrainians telling uh, telling their Ukrainian relatives that you know, don't worry, uh, our, our army will, will come to save you from, from the Nazis. So uh, if, if, you know, looking ahead after this conflict is over, how would you approach that rift? How would you heal those divides, which are at this point very, very wide, even among family members and only getting wider? Well, this is a very good question, you know, and as I said, I mean, we have seen how Russia, I mean, so how France and Germany after the Second World War worked for many years, people to people diplomacy, state to state, businessmen to businessmen, uh, you know, all, you know, 
to be able to heal the rift of that war. And it took them decades and decades, you know, of, of work, hard work. And I think it all depends on how the war ends. Um, the way I, I see this is that, you know, I understand that there are arguments that we cannot, you know, we have to, we have to let Ukraine win. Yes, but at the same time, we have to be able to provide a pathway for Russia to exit this, um, to exit this war, and 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 with a win. I mean, Putin is not going to end this war without a win. But also, it's important that. Putin does not, you know, uh, but it's also important that Ukraine, you know, does not leave this war defeated, but rather with a win. So how can we fashion a deal whereby the two sides can exit this war um, and end it as quickly as possible, feeling that they each won? I mean, that's, that's, that's a major challenge. And to be very honest, I don't see the Russian president yet in a mindset and I'm not a Russia expert, but listening to people who understand Putin's mindset, talking with Russian colleagues who, whose business is to follow, you know, Putin's moods and mindset. Um, I don't see a way for the Russian president to bring his mind to a solution that is, that, that is short of a Ukrainian defeat. And realistically, it's no longer possible, you know, unless, who knows, he uses the kind of weapons that we all dread. But there's no pathway to him to ensure that. So until he comes to the realization that, you know, we both need to win and, no, and, and, and there is, we, need, we both need to secure a win. Although I have to say, given the horrors we are seeing in Ukraine, really calling any win a win is, 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 to say is um, not respecting enough the, the loss that this country and this people have experienced. So having said that, the question is how this ends, what kind of a deal is fashioned that creates path and that would create pathways for um, the peoples, you know, as I said, and there are different mechanisms, different ways by which you can bring reconciliation between people. It's not going to happen in the short term. It's not going to happen in the medium term. It's, as you said, there are conflicts in the midst. I mean, there are rifts inside the same family of people who are with and pro, you know. Um, so that's going to take a very, very, very long time. And I don't know if it can be healed in my generation, to be very honest, that those kinds of wounds. But it's going to require a lot of efforts at all different levels. And it's going to require also the assistance of the international community. You know, I mean, we have we have a lot of expertise in the international community of countries that fought with each other. And then they were able to reach some kind of a coexistence and come to peace with the harm and the wounds that have afflicted on each other. And there are there is a lot of expertise in how you do that. Uh, and how you can, and, and then the need for supporting that. But uh, it's not going to be easy. It's going to require first a, a change in the Russian present mindset of what he wants and he can achieve um, in, in, with this war. After all, he started, you know, without the Ukraine representing 
any threat to Russian security and Russian stability. And and once that shift happens, then there is conflict resolution efforts, hopefully by Turkey or somebody else, that can lead to some kind of a deal to end the violence. And after that, the how to say healing the wounds need to 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 start, and it takes a long time and it's going to require a lot of people and a lot of international support. Thanks for that question, Greg, um, and Randa for your for your reply. Um, are there any closing thoughts you'd like to leave us with uh, in this? First of probably uh, another discussion, we'll have a, another point with you. There is one point I want to make, which, which I think is important, given the discussion we just had about Yemen and the other. I mean, as I said, there are now, I mean, the, the region, the Middle East, is, is in the midst of huge refugee crisis, Yemenis, Syrians, Palestinians, Iraqis. And there is now a serious fear that because of the Ukrainian crisis, there is a serious fear among among a lot of NGOs, among people who work in humanitarian assistance, that there will be competition for the humanitarian dollar from Western donors, um, and that the attention now is definitely should be focused on Ukraine, but that eventually that humanitarian dollar will start to be prioritized for Ukraine. And less assistance will start going to Syrian refugees, to Yemeni refugees, to Libya, to people in Libya, to people in, you know, refugees in Turkey, refugees in Jordan, uh, Syrian refugees in Jordan, Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Lebanon, the small country in the midst of an economic crisis, hosts 1.2 million Syrian refugees. And they totally rely on international assistance. So there is now this worry and concern, which in my opinion is valid, that as the Ukraine crisis, especially if the Ukraine crisis protracts, especially if the needs for humanitarian assistance, you know, by Ukrainians increase, which I expect them to to to, to have, you know, to, to be the case, that there will be less money, you know, provided to take care of this other refugee crisis in the Middle East. Thank you very much for that, uh, Randa. Really appreciate it. And everybody, thank you very much for listening in uh, to yet another episode of the Global Gambit podcast brought to you by the Big Picture Club on Clubhouse. Take care. You were listening to the Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Lastly, don't be shy. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.